Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts shall have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures. Well, welcome to our uh, one-time stop at the Martinique. If we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at uh, Exilic, and I want to welcome you to our church today. And uh, interestingly enough, we're actually doing a four-part teaching series on the church, and one of the things that we've been saying is that uh, the church is not a building, but the church is the people. And that's actually really great for us because if the church was a, bu a building, Exilic would be a hotel uh, based upon uh, all the venues that we're at. So the church is not a building, but it's the people. And so what that means is people don't walk into church, rather the, the church walks into a building. And the reason for that is because we are the church. So there are four pictures that we have uh, painted for you uh, regarding what the church looks like, and they are uh, the church is a bride, the church is a family, the church is a body, and the church is a unique kind of building. And uh, we've already taken a look at the church as a bride and a church as a family, and today I want to take a look at uh, the church as a body. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, there's a story that uh, I want to read for you, and uh, <clears throat> for those of you who are public speakers, you know that reading long stories is a big no-no. I'm going to break that rule and read you a very, very long story, and so I'm going to have to do my best to capture uh, your imagination and your attention for uh, this story because it's a good one, and uh, it's about a man named Chuck Colson, who's the founder of a ministry called Prison Fellowship. And Prison Fellowship Ministries uh, basically reaches out to inmates throughout the country. And Colson tells of one story 
uh, on an Easter Sunday. Let me read that for us. It was a cold, windy morning, more like winter than the beginning of spring. We arrived at the Sussex Correctional Institution just as the day's first light was filtering through the morning clouds. The prison was opened in 1931. It holds about 1,100 maximum, medium, and minimum security inmates, all men. Bruce Wilkinson and I were to lead the worship services. Our team gathered on the central area of the outdoor prison compound. We were raised on a platform with sound equipment for the musicians, our microphone, and other paraphernalia. It was a good setup. But I was distressed when I saw the rest of the arrangement. There was a big chain-link fence between the platform and the prisoners. And to make it worse, it was getting colder. An icy northwest wind whipped through the prison yard. I had on a heavy-lined raincoat, and I was still chilled to the bone. My heart went out to the prisoners who were standing in that wind with no jacket, just their thin, white prison uniforms. I told the inmates my own story, how the risen Christ had saved me. I spoke about Jesus, the prisoner. I tried to put the story in terms that these inmates, mostly under the age of 30, could relate to. I talked about how Jesus had been turned over to the authorities by one of his own friends who turned on him, how he'd been held in isolation cells, strip searched, beaten up. I talked about how the guards gambled for his clothes, the people who stood by just staring at him, not doing anything, and the officials who only cared about their own power. And then I talked about the prisoners who hung on the crosses on either side of Jesus. One mocked him like the other cynics in the crowd that day. The other recognized his own sin and the fact that Jesus really was the son of God. And he was promised eternal life. What a great Easter morning, I thought. But it wasn't over. Not wanting to leave out Bruce Wilkinson, I leaned over and whispered to him, Bruce, why don't you go up and say a word to the men and then close the service with prayer? He nodded and got up, and I prepared to bow my head in prayer. Now, Bruce had never been in prison before in his life. This was all new to him. He hadn't been through our 18-hour training in which we'd carefully counsel volunteers about what to do and say and what to never, ever do and never, ever say in prison. Bruce walked up to the microphone and looked at the inmates who were all crowded against the fence trying to get closer to the platform. They looked at him. But he didn't introduce himself or give any warm opening remarks. He just said, I want all of you men who are pushing up against this fence to move back about 10 or 12 paces. There was no pleas or anything. You should understand that the prison environment is very macho. And in a setting like this, you don't tell prisoners what to do, particularly if you haven't won the right to be heard or don't have the authority that they recognize. When Bruce told the men to move back, nothing happened. There was a cold silence. I looked toward the correctional officers who were guarding the entrances, and they were suddenly on alert. You could feel the tension. However, Bruce was not rattled at all. Go ahead, he said. I want you all to move back. All of you get back from the fence about 10 or 12 paces. 
my stomach clenched a little. There was, there was still a cold silence, and some of the men started to shuffle backward a little. I caught the eye of the commissioner of correction, and he looked worried, as did the chaplain. I muttered a little prayer under my breath. It wasn't theologically sophisticated. Lord, help us here. I don't know what Bruce is doing. Meanwhile, Bruce stood looking over the inmates, his hands on his hips. Men, move back, he said again, a few more steps back. And finally, the crowd of men had cleared a perimeter about 12 feet back from the fence that separated them from the podium. Okay, said Bruce, now I want all the Christians, those of you who gave your life to Christ today, those of you who have been believers for a while, I want all of you to walk forward to the fence. I covered my eyes with my hands. This is it, I thought. You just can't do this in prison. He's setting these guys up for trouble. But when I looked up, to my amazement, half a dozen guys walked to the fence without hesitation. Then five or six more, they just poured forward. About 200 inmates walked up to the fence and stood there with a uh, kind of quiet confidence not fidgeting, not standing, just waiting, looking at Bruce. All right, Bruce said, good. Now, all you men who stepped forward, you have stepped forward as the people of God in this prison. You are the church here. Now, I want all of you to turn around with your backs towards me, and I want you to do an about face and look at the rest of the prison population standing here. At this point, my heart was back in my mouth. The prison officials and correction officers are shooting glances at one another. The officers watching certain inmates closely. Bruce seemed to be setting up a situation with two sets of inmates in confrontation. Something like this could easily get out of hand. But what happened was unbelievable. The Christian guys who had walked to the fence paused for a moment, then almost as one. They turned around and stood, looking straight into the eyes of the rest of the men. Bruce kept pushing. Now I want you believers to get down on your knees. You're the church in here. I'm going to pray for you. I've asked you to turn so you're facing the rest of these guys because they are your mission field. Your job as Christians is to share the gospel with them, love them, and serve them. The Christian men got down on their knees and then without instruction put their hands on one another's shoulders. It was such a beautiful, powerful paradox. A kneeling army of believers, arms around one another in a posture of service before the rest of the tough, skeptical men in that institution. Bruce prayed and a holy hush came over that cold prison yard. He prayed that these men might boldly witness to the love of Christ, that they might be filled with the grace of God, and that he would use them to build his church, extend his kingdom, so that more and more inmates in that prison community would turn their hearts to give glory to God. After Bruce ended his prayer, he asked if any more men would like to follow Jesus, and many did. Those men were still in prison, but they were free indeed. I love that story. I love that story because it really beautifully encapsulates what the body of Christ looks like. That on the one hand, we are many parts. 
On the other hand, we are one body and united together. And so there are two things that I want to take a look at from our passage today in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, that we are one body. And the second thing I want to take a look at is that we are many parts. So first, I want to take a look at we are one body. And if you take a look with me at verses 12 to 13 from our passage, let me read that for us again. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So what these two verses are saying is that even though we are many parts, even though there's a diversity, there's also a unity, and that we form uh, this one body. And what that means is that when you enter into a relationship with God, you automatically enter into a relationship with his people. And the best expression of what those horizontal relationships look like with other Christians, the best expression of that is the church. In other words, you cannot have a relationship with God unless you also have a relationship with the church. In many ways, the two go hand in hand. So you cannot love Jesus and simultaneously hate the church, which is why Paul talks about the church as uh, one body. And in later passages, Paul talks about how uh, Christ is the head of the body and how the head is not severed off from the body, nor is the body severed off from the head, but the two go hand in hand. So if we are one body but many parts, what that means is that these parts cannot be disconnected from the body. Otherwise, we would look like a Mr. Potato Head. What that means is that the body parts must be connected to the body so, as, uh, so that we become one unit uh, together. And one of the reasons why I say that is because it's somewhat in vogue today to sort of believe in Jesus or be spiritual but not want anything to do with the church. And two writers that have uh, influenced me growing up uh, are uh, Donald Miller, a Christian writer, and Anne Rice, who many of you know is a fiction writer, who are both uh, self-professed Christians, uh, but they have separated themselves from the church. And I want to read for you uh, why they say they have sort of disconnected themselves from the church on the first page of your bulletin. Miller says, I'd say half of the most impactful people I know who love Jesus and tear up at the mention of his name who reach out to the poor and lonely and are fundamentally sound in their theology, who create institutions that feed hundreds of thousands, do not attend a traditional church service. Many of them even speak at churches, but they have no home church and don't long for one. Anne Rice, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried, and I failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being Christian. Amen. And what both Miller and Rice are saying is that they want to maintain and keep their relationship with God, but they no longer want a relationship with the church. And one of the primary reasons for that is because the church is a messy place. And the reason why the church is a messy place is because people 
are messy. But one of the reasons why Paul doesn't want us to have that mentality is because in Ephesians, he talks about how Christ, again, is head of the body of Christ. And if a head is disconnected from the body, it's no longer well. And if the body is disconnected from the head, it's no longer well. The two are sort of connected together. So to be in a relationship with Christ the head also means being in a relationship with the body. Now imagine this. Imagine if someone came up to you and they said, I'm really attracted to you and I want to be in a relationship with you. I think your face is really handsome and beautiful, but the thing is, your body kind of disgusts me. <laughs> Imagine if someone said that to you. Would you feel insulted? Of course you would. Why? Because your face and your body are connected. They're one. They're not disconnected from. This is a total package. And similarly, similarly, it is with Christ and the church. The head isn't disconnected from the body. The body isn't disconnected from the head. The two are one. They come hand in hand together. And Paul says that each one of us is a part of the body. Each one of us is uh, members of it. Now, does this body have a six-pack and a perfect figure? No, it doesn't. In many ways, this body is very sick. This body is wounded. This body is hurting. Uh, this body has a terrible diet. This body doesn't exercise. And you know what? We are all spiritually unhealthy. We're spiritually hurting. Uh, we, we consume junk from our culture, and that's our diet. We don't exercise our beliefs. We're not that healthy as well, and as a result, the church, it's not a perfect place. It's filled with messy and broken people. But you know what? If the hand, if your hand were to say, I really hate the legs, so I'm just going to cut myself off from the body, what would happen to the hands? It would malfunction and die. What would happen to your body? It would be deeply, deeply wounded and hurting. And similarly, if you cut yourself off from the church, not only are you eventually going to malfunction and your spiritual life go down in the toilet, but you're also hurting the body of Christ. We need you. And you know what? You need the church because the two go uh, hand in hand together. A brick alone is nothing but rubble. But when bricks are built upon one another, it forms a glorious cathedral. And it is similar with Christ uh, and the church. So we are one unit, one body, but also at the same time, we are many parts. So let me read for us verse 15 and 22. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Uh, Sam Albury, one of my favorite authors and speakers, um, has written a book called Why Bother with Church? And in the book, he uses this illustration and he says, imagine if someone gave you a pen and a piece of paper and they said, try to write your name as many times as you can in the next 30 seconds. How many times do you think you could write your name? Maybe 10 times, maybe 12? Now he says, try to do the same thing. Write your name with the pen and paper in 30 seconds, except this time, don't use your hands. Only use your mouth or your toes. 
How many times do you think you can write your name then? Maybe once, maybe twice. And the point of that illustration is that every part of the body is indispensable. Every body part has a purpose and a role. Okay, so you might be a hand, you might be a foot, but regardless, every part is indispensable. When something's dispensable, you could throw it away. When Paul says that every body part is indispensable, it means that we can't throw one another away. Now, the truth of the matter is there are some things that are more behind the scenes and invisible, and there are some things that are more visible and in the front scenes. There are some things, some things that are behind the scenes, like your organs. They're invisible to us. But do they matter? Do they, do they play a purpose and role for your body? Absolutely. There are certain things that are more visible, like your eyes, your hair, your nose. Uh, do they play a role? Absolutely. So whether it's on the front scenes or behind the scenes, every, every part of the body plays a role. And so in many ways, the church is like a symphony. There's different musicians. People are playing different parts. But all of these different musicians and all of the different parts form one piece, and all of the parts are sort of in concert together uh, playing the exact same uh, music. And similarly, it is with uh, the church as well. And so in our church, there are formal ways that you can serve. Uh, so through our various ministries, some are more visible, some are less visible. There are a lot of people that came early this morning to help set up uh, our space for worship here today that you haven't seen. They've been here for a few hours already. And there are informal ways of serving as well. So formal ways with committees, informal ways like being welcoming. Uh, you know what being a good member of a church is? Half of it, just coming to stuff on time. Coming to church on time, coming weekly, attending community groups, uh, coming to our prayer brunch uh, that's later on next month. Half of just being a good member is just showing up to things. Praying for someone and telling them that you're praying for them is one of the best gifts that you can give to another person. And so there are both formal and informal ways of serving our body, but the point is that all of us have an obligation to one another. Let me read uh, the final quote on the first page of your bulletin from Tim Keller. And Keller says, when we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, we say things like serves them right or we mock them on social media. What kind of imbecile would say something like this? When we see people of the other political party defeated, we just gloat. This is all a way of detaching ourselves from them. We distance ourselves from them partly out of pride and partly because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. God doesn't do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our hearts to others means the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It affects us. That is deeply uncomfortable, but it is the character of compassion. And one of the imageries I like uh, for this is that of a mango tree. When you cut off a branch from a mango tree, all of the nutrients from the other branches go to the area that it was cut off. And similarly, that is what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. When one area of the body of Christ is hurting, one member, then all of the nutrients and energy of the rest of the body go into the person that is hurting. And personally, if I can give you an example of this, I'm so thankful for um, the face-to-face -face questions about how my father's condition is, the texts, uh, the emails saying that you're praying and inquiring about it. So I, 
I'm deeply, deeply grateful. And just so you know, actually, he had successful leg surgery and he uh, got his blood clot removed uh, this past week. And my sister right now is in Korea uh, attending to some of his needs. And so I'm deeply, deeply appreciative. When one part of the body is hurting, we're all hurting. When one part of the body is rejoicing, we are all rejoicing. And I like how Paul describes it in verse 26 and 27. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. And what Paul is saying here is that a healthy body is a united body, not a divided body. And one of the ways that we become a more healthy body is demonstrated by our care for one another. And so I like the picture of an attending physician, which some of you might appreciate. An attending physician, the word attend, they're called attending physicians because they attend to the needs of other people. And below the attending physician are the nurses and the patients. And the attending physician goes around, he does his rounds, making sure that the nurses are taken care of and all the patients. He goes around or she goes around, they check the vital signs of the patients. They go around asking questions. They go around encouraging people. And this might seem obvious, but the word encouragement literally means to put courage into someone when they're afraid, when they're fearful. That's literally what it means to put courage into someone when they're facing anxiety. And that is the kind of community uh, that we are called to do. Now imagine if every one of us lived through that lens and that metaphor where we all saw ourselves as attending physicians for one another. How much would your life change as a result of that? How much would our church's life change if we all saw ourselves through the lens of being uh, an attending uh, physician? You know, one of the ways that people uh, gauge the health of a church is by metrics, numbers. But the success of a church is not necessarily gauged by metrics. Just because something grows, it doesn't mean it's healthy. Infections grow, tumors grow, cancer grows. Just because something grows, it doesn't mean it's healthy. There's actually a good kind of growth and a bad kind of growth. So what does a good kind of growth look like? A good kind of growth looks like this. When a church is not fixated on how many people come to church, Instead, what the church is fixated on is how healthy, spiritually healthy, is every person. If you only focus on numerical growth, bad health will always be the result. But if you focus on everyone's spiritual health, numerical growth is usually the natural consequence. And I want you to know that the way that we view our church is through the lens of spiritual health, which is why we value something like membership. We want each of you to uh, be in a spiritually, vertically healthy place Uh, with God. So the goal of our church is not to grow big. The goal is to grow deep. Because when God looks at a church, he doesn't count how many people are at church. He doesn't count people. He weighs people. How deep are these people's hearts? And we want all of us to be at a place where we have depth and moxie for one another. Now, how do we become a part of this community and why should we love this community? Let me close with verse 13. Verse 13 says, For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether the Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. In verse 13, it says that we were all baptized by one spirit. And it says that it doesn't really matter what your ethnicity is or what your vocation is. 
the way that you become a part of this body is if you're baptized into it by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know what water baptism is about. It's about cleansing, and uh, it's a symbolism, a sign and seal of the forgiveness of your sins. But this, this verse talks about being baptized by the Spirit. And what that really is is not only the sign and seal, but it's act, the actual thing that happens to you. So let me give you one of the best, best illustrations of what the gospel is and what the Holy Spirit does through us, to us, through the person and work of Jesus. I want you to imagine for a moment that there's a piece of paper, and at the very top of this piece of paper is your name. And below your name is a list of all the wrong things that you have done your whole life. So the times that you've been severely, severely discontent, uh, envious, you snuck a lustful glance at someone at the gym, you snuck a lustful glance at some kind of thing or object, the times that you have gossiped about other people, the times that you felt yourself superior to other people, the times you've lost your cool and your temper, uh, the list goes on and on. And not just the one time you did it, but every single time you've done that. How long do you think that piece of paper would be? One page? Ten pages, depending on the font size? Maybe a few hundred pages? Because it keeps a whole record of wrongs from your whole life. How long do you think that, that book would be? Now, I want you to imagine another piece of paper, and this time at the very top it has Jesus' name and a list of all the wrong things that he has done the 33 years he has lived. And on this piece of paper, it is totally, totally blank. But what Jesus does is he erases his name, he erases your name, and instead, where your name was, he writes his name. So as this, it's as if he had lived this life the life that you had lived. And where he erased his name, he writes his name. And even though it's blank, he starts writing something. Except he doesn't write totally selfish. He writes always selfless. He doesn't write very, very judgmental. He writes very, very loving. Very, very sacrificial. Always kind. Always loving always encouraging, always edifying, always lifting people up, always dying to themselves. And this exchange is what happens on the cross, where Jesus takes on your sins upon himself and he credits to you all of his righteousness. And if you believe that, that is how we become a part of this family because that's what we all believe. And the more and more you understand that, the more you begin to realize that that's what we're connected by. It's not our ethnicity, our vocations, our shared hobbies or interests. Our commonality is sin, and our commonality is what Jesus has done for us. And the more we understand that about ourselves, we actually begin to love one another because we're all really the same. I know that the uh, Avengers came out this weekend, and so if you haven't seen it, let me spoil the 2012 version for you. In the 2012 version of Avengers, a uh, uh, couple agents bring this ensemble of individuals together, uh, very talented individuals with different skill sets, but it's obvious that there's really no unity or team here. And so the agent kind of brings them all aboard and to sort of hopefully live for something bigger themselves and hopefully that the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts. 
The problem was that the first half of the movie is it goes terrible. Uh, each of the talented individuals is squabbling with one another, uh, backbiting with one another, fighting with one another, and it's not going well at all. Uh, and the, the bad guy in the movie uh, actually capitalizes on their disunity and their disconnectedness. And for a while, it doesn't look good. But somewhere around the middle, towards the end of the movie, one of the agents, I think uh, Phil, Phil Coltrane or something like that, Coltrane or something like that, he dies. And, and the, this ensemble is sort of stunned uh, at what happened. And it's around this agent's death that this group of individuals come together as a team, as a unit, as a family to live for something bigger than themselves, to put their own agendas aside and to come together as a team and one unit and one body. And when you watch a movie like that, it's hard not to think about us and the one person that died for us, Jesus, and how previously we are nothing more than just a bunch of individuals, gifted and talented, coming together. But now we come together to put aside our own agendas and our own kingdom to live for his agenda and a bigger kingdom uh, than ourselves. And that is really what it means to be uh, the body of Christ. Without you in the picture, uh, our church is not whole. But with you in the picture, our church is whole. We need you, every one of you, and you also need us. Our church is not perfect, but if you see a problem, fix it. If you see somewhere that stinks, change the diaper. Be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Join us as we try and strive to become a healthier community. Uh, we will never be perfect, but we can help one another. And where one part hurts, we hurt. Where one part rejoices, we rejoice. Please pray with me.